Hello, and thank you for joining us to discuss workplace complaint investigations, stay impartial, avoid litigation, and preserve morale. I'm Lisa Dishman, and today we're digging deeper into the best practices surrounding the investigation of employee complaints, an often tricky and fraught process that employers of all sizes face. We hope that our discussion today will help you navigate not only the basics of the investigation process, but will also give you insight into some of the more subtle issues surrounding confidentiality, potential conflicts, and privilege. EPS consultants have conducted thousands of investigations within most industries on every topic imaginable. My highly experienced colleagues, Stephanie Davis, EPS president, and Denise Kay, our senior consultant in Denver, join me today. Both Stephanie and Denise are not only attorneys, they are also senior human resource professionals as de designated by the Human Resource Certification Institute, and both bring a broad, distinct perspective to the investigation process. Before we get started, I wanted to share some background with our listeners about EPS and our investigation services. EPS consultants are licensed attorneys, and we are a certified woman-owned business enterprise. Our attorney consultants are utilized not only as investigators, but also employment practices experts in litigation on behalf of both plaintiffs and defendants. Both federal and state courts have acknowledged the expertise of EPS consultants in the area of investigations and employment relations training. Welcome, Stephanie and Denise, and thank you both for joining me today. Receive complaints from employees all the time on various issues. When does an employee complaint merit an investigation? Stephanie, can you kick it off for us? Of course. So it's, it's true that as a manager or HR professional, your reality is that a steady stream of complaints are going to come your, are going to come your way. And many complaints and concerns can just be addressed without an investigation. However, there are certain types of complaints that we need to investigate in a thorough and, and consistent manner. And these would include harassment or other kinds of discrimination claims, allegations of theft or fraud, allegations of other illegal act, uh, activities, claims of violence, certainly, and, and claims that your policy has been, has been violated. Even within the, the range of investigations, there's a lot of variation. Not every investigation is going to be time-consuming and comprehensive. Sometimes you can get the information you need simply by talking to one or two people and maybe reviewing some written materials. The idea is that we need to gather the information necessary to fairly and accurately answer the questions that we need answered, which is going to change with every allegation and therefore every investigation is unique. Well, let's be specific. Let me put the supervisor hat on and let's say I've received a complaint. It might not be clear to me how serious the issue is, at least on its face and the conversation I'm having with an employee, or I could simply be mired in my job that day and be taken off guard. Can you help me understand, Denise, what my obligation is as a supervisor in the complaint process? Sure. I think it's very critical for all supervisors and managers uh, to get educated on what might actually entail a, a quote, complaint uh, that would need to trigger further inquiry. 
And, you know, it's going to be a question of when the employer is, is what they call put on notice of an employee concern or complaint that the managers are going to need to be able to identify, you know, regardless if it's a written complaint or simply a rumor or water cooler talk, you know, what's involved and what are their responsibilities. So, you know, it's not really um, intuitive uh, without practice as to, you know, how you decide and decipher what is a legitimate complaint that needs further investigation and what's something you can kind of vet out quickly. And so really practice, education, training, on identifying employee complaints is really critical to that process. An employer should really want their management team to be well prepared on the kind of the do's and don'ts of complaint intake. And if in fact a manager fails to properly recognize a concern or perhaps delays in responding to a concern, it could really be costly to the organization. An example that is given in our EPS book called Prevent Workplace Harassment is a case of Walmart where there was a jury verdict for over $50 million just in one case where the court rendered uh, against Walmart and determined that management failed to investigate and failed to act on the plaintiff's claims of sexual harassment. And the court actually stated that, quote, management generally ignored those complaints. So in my mind, it's imperative that management know how to recognize it, uh, know what to do with the information based on your company's policies, uh, keeping in mind that, you know, management doesn't necessarily have to conduct the investigation, but has to be able to deal with the complainant in an empathetic way, in a timely manner, and then get that information intake into the proper person's hands. Terrific insight in terms of the manager, Denise, but let's say now I'm the human resource professional within that organization, and I've been made aware of the complaint. What's next? Do I dive into it? Are there other considerations? Do I involve the managers? Stephanie, can you help us sort of tease out the pros and cons for me as an HR professional doing the investigation versus other internal resources, or even third parties as an option? Sure. So the answer to, to these questions really depends on a, a number of variables. And one variable is the actual content of the complaint. The co complaint might be so serious or broad or involve such key personnel that it makes sense to outsource the complaint, the investigation, because it, it needs to be as defensible, as airtight as possible. Your internal options likely have the benefit of being familiar with the landscape and, the, and the, as well as the players, but they might not be as experienced as you'd like them to be, and they might not ultimately make a good witness in the event of a deposition or trial. You know, if you, if you can foresee that coming down the pipe, you, you should certainly consider an outside resource if your inside options aren't, if you don't feel completely comfortable with them as potential witnesses. Another variable is the resources that you, that you have uh, access to. If there's any question about the impartiality of your internal options or, or you simply don't have the human power, the matter should be outsourced. Uh, another consideration is if, if HR is the actual target of a complaint, which does happen, you're obviously going to want to have it investigated by external resources. And if you do decide to go out the organization, the options are a law firm or a human resources consulting firm like 
like EPS, where you're going to find consultants who are not only attorneys, but human resource professionals. So you're going to spend more money, obviously, on the, on the actual investigation by going outside. But in the long run, if there any of these considerations that I, that I mentioned are present, your investigation is going to be stronger and therefore more impervious to attack if you go externally. Steph, can you break down, I want to take both of those scenarios, an internal investigator and an outside investigator, and, and take them back one more layer. Can you differentiate between the in-house HR professional and in-house legal counsel? Can you just be a little bit more specific about one versus the other? I know some organizations may have a particular practice in using you know, certain resources for certain complaints internally, but can you differentiate the pluses and minuses of the internal HR versus internal legal counsel? I mean, I think that's an organizational decision, and it probably differs from organization to organization. And I would guess, that, and that's not something I would necessarily be privy to, but I would guess that the legal arm is going to focus on um, issues and complaints and concerns that have a legal aspect to them. And the rest of the sort of um, foster complaints would go, to, go through HR. I would say as, as a recommendation, if I was asked, I, they need, your, your internal concerns need to be addressed consistently. I mean, that, that's kind of the most important consideration. And certainly legal should be reviewing ultimately any decision that, that HR makes that, that has any, any sort of legal ramification. But I've seen it go both ways. I've seen it, you know, where HR handles all employee relations um, investigations and vice versa, where, where legal handles them all. And I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong way to do it as long as legal ultimately is, is overseeing, as I said, um, aspects of an investigation that have a legal impact. Lisa, I was just going to add that, you know, one, one caveat to that, I agree with everything Stephanie's saying, but you have, to, you have to keep in mind that, you know, if any of these issues that are being investigated lead to litigation, there's a really good chance that that investigation will be discoverable. And in that case, it's also likely that the actual investigator will become a fact witness. So if there's any chance that you are concerned that your in-house legal counsel would need to be representing you in this matter, they could conflict themselves out as a fact witness by conducting the investigation themselves. And that's just another consideration when deciding whether to keep an investigation in-house or hire a neutral third party. Um, I just want to add one more point on to Denise's additional point. Um, not only could your in-house counsel conflict themselves out, but the same concept could apply to your, uh, your exterior counsel if you decide to have them conduct the investigation, which is another consideration. So I imagine some of our listeners would say, are saying, why would I use ever use a third party like EPS, just for example, as opposed to my outside counsel? So your outside counsel is also subject to being a fact witness. No? So yes. that's when a third party like EPS would come into play? Exactly. I think that clarifies those options uh, very well. Let's shift gears now to the investigation itself. We've made the determination that we know we need to have an investigation, regardless of, of, of if it's an in-house investigation or a third party is doing it. So let's talk about confidentiality and documenting the process. 
one of the biggest issues that comes up in an investigation is confidentiality, particularly for the complainant and the accused. It seems straightforward that preserving the confidentiality of those parties is necessary, but just this year, the NLRB weighed in with a decision that might be surprising to some of our listeners, but not all investigations are necessarily to be held confidential. Denise, can you talk about the NLRB's ruling and specifically what it means for employers when it comes to their investigations of workplace complaints? You know, Lisa, it has always been our philosophy that confidentiality and discretion are really key to getting to the bottom of underlying disputes. Uh, But interestingly enough, as you mentioned, there's some surprising uh, National Labor Relations Board decisions, two, two decisions particularly that came down this year that kind of surprised the employment law community. Um, they seemingly serve to kind of reverse a longstanding precedent that witness statements secured during an employee investigation would be exempt from production in any kind of NLRB proceeding. And also that instructing employees to not discuss the internal investigation with their coworkers could potentially violate an employee's rights under the National Labor Relations Act. So, you know, practically, what does this mean for employers going forward? Um, the, the first decision I'll discuss is a case called Banner Health Systems. And this one applies to all employers that would be covered by the NLRA, regardless of whether or not the employees are actually represented by a union. And what it does, this decision, is it restricts an employer's ability to maintain the confidentiality in workplace investigations. Um, basically what the case said is that the, the need for confidentiality will not be presumed or assumed, and it will need to be proven on a case-by-case basis. Um, the second decision that uh, applies to this situation is called Piedmont Gardens, and it was decided the same day. Um, it affects union-represented employees, and it limits the employer from actually making assurances to witnesses that their statements will remain confidential because there is a chance that upon request, their statements would have to be disclosed to the union. This is a really big change, um, and and in some cases, employers fear that it will stifle the information gathering process. You know, some of the things that we've had to do to make adjustments for these decisions is that we've had to look at um, any types of guarantees of confidentiality that we had in employees' policies and procedures, and then we also need to inform employees that, you know, while we will continue to treat their statements as confidential, if a request is made, we may have to disclose it. So, Denise, that decision has to be made at the start of every investigation. Is that my understanding, to determine if the facts or the circumstances indicate that confidentiality is required? Am I understanding that correctly? You know, and the employer would decide and try to maintain and preserve the confidentiality of the investigation, but there cannot be a guarantee that that would be the case. So we've had to make sure that as witnesses come forward that we're not assuring and guaranteeing confidentiality because upon request under the NLRB's decisions, it may have to be disclosed. So, Stephanie, Denise, either one of you, given that, can you offer up some guidelines or suggestions on how an investigator would talk to witnesses, the accused or the accuser, in the investigation about confidentiality? Steph, can we start with you? Sure. And just backing up a moment, the um, 
one of the, the practical ways we navigate this difficult area these days is to consider at the outset what particular circumstances warrant the need for confidentiality, and we try to document them as part of our investigation plan. So a particular sensitivity to retaliation, for example, would you know, need to be documented and explained because that might lead to, that might lend itself to a, an argument that confidentiality was warranted under the circumstances. So we always try to consider that in, in, as we are planning, in the investigation planning stage. Now, when we're actually in an inter interview, the, the information about confidentiality that we convey to the witness is going to depend on um, a couple of things. You know, uh, it's going to depend on the status of the witness, and it's going to depend for us at EPS, at least as external investigators, on what the client wants the message to be, because that's going to differ from organization to organization. You know, what, they, what, what their workforce looks like, whether we're talking to supervisors or non-supervisors, um, is it, going to inform their decision, and it's not our decision to make. However, a typical message these days that I would be comfortable conveying will look something like the following. So for supervisors, Everything we discuss is going to be kept confidential to the extent practical. Only those with a need to know will we'll have information about what you and I talk about today. I'm going to ask you to keep our discussion confidential as well. And that's because maintaining confidentiality protects the integrity of the investigation process. It honors not only your privacy rights, but the privacy rights of others. And it ensures that nobody's subjected to retaliation. The message for non-supervisors is slightly different. Everything we discussed was kept confidential to the extent practical, and only those you know, with the business need to know are going to have this information. I'm going to ask you to use your best discretion in keeping our uh, discussion private as well to protect the integrity of the investigation and the privacy of all those involved. So the, the difference being that it's a subtle difference, but for supervisors, you can ask them to keep it confidential, and for non-supervisors, you can certainly guide them in that direction and explain why it's helpful and necessary, but you can't require it. Understood. And I'm guessing that most employers have policies that reinforce and dovetail those communications that you're making to the participants in an investigation. That's right. I, I mean, most often... These days, I'm finding, and Denise, you can let me know what your, your experience is, but I find that the policies on confidentiality are not explicit. Rather, they're implicit, and, you know, what, what is con conveyed uh, depends on the circumstances and, and, again, and the status of the individual I'm interviewing. I would just dovetail that to say we really encourage employers, um, if they, and we hope that they do, have an anti-harassment policy and a thorough one that they actually reevaluate the confidentiality language in that policy to make sure it comports with these recent decisions and make sure it, it comports and complies with the rest of their policies regarding uh, their investigative processes. So just taking a look at them and making sure that the organization is comfortable with the language used and that it wouldn't provide any barriers to them um, conducting a thorough, comprehensive, and hopefully discreet investigation. So we've, we've made the determination, let's say, in an individual investigation about confidentiality and the extent that it's required. 
so in conducting the investigation, we've talked about the potential for litigation, regardless of the potential documentation of that entire investigation process is critical. And we could probably talk for an hour about that part of the topic alone. So could each of you give our listeners just a few of the most important lessons you've learned as it relates to documentation and reporting on the investigation process? Denise, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I think personally that documentation is your best friend in these cases. Um, The recording of all the facts and even in some cases credibility assessments serves to provide a real detailed accounting of the efforts that went into addressing the concerns. It helps to build a timeline commensurate with the investigative process. You know, memories wane, and the more detail that are captured simultaneous to the event is better evidence of the truth. Um, so trying to you know, recall or recapture data later down the road if litigation arises is just not as credible or reliable. So I think documentation is key to conducting a thorough and and complete investigation. Um, You know, if these issues lead to to litigation, there is a good chance that the investigation file is discoverable. And you're going to want to have a solid record of the efforts that were taken and the people that were involved so you can present a solid case. Can you give us a few of the elements of that documentation? I'm assuming that's the complaint itself, notes. Um, other written materials. Uh, yeah, the, the be file a little bit more specific about the specifics. What the file sure. contains. The file should be comprehensive, and it should compla- contain any intake information that was was provided. The complaints do not have to be in writing to be valid. Um, but if somebody was listening to to an employee who was raising concerns, I, we would hope that they would be educated and trained on taking proper notes. So that should be part of the first part of the file. And then any of the intake information that was done, if it was an anonymous complaint that came in through an employee hotline, the record of that should be included in the file. All of the witness statements, there should be notes, whether they were typewritten, handwritten, whatever is included um, should be in that file regarding employee statements, witness statements in this case. You'd want any phone records. I try to maintain, if there's any electronic information that was involved in the case, it could be emails, it could be photos, um, I've had many cases recently that involve text messaging or pictures some, via cell phone. Try to capture those and get those in the file um, as, as comprehensive as you can get. And then, of course, if any report was issued, uh, executive summary or full report on the findings, that also needs to be included in the file along with any timelines or other supplemental documentation that was used um, to make the determinations. So I would just add that, that two, um, in addition to all the important information that Denise just conveyed, um, two really important components of my process are the investigation, a written investigation plan, which sets forth the key elements of the investigation, uh, essentially the scope, the questions that you're presented with that you need to answer, um, those who, who should learn about the outcome of the, of the investigation, and your anticipated process, the interviews and documentation to review, et cetera. And then the other thing I think that's really important to consider about documentation is being clear on the right report style, if any, that's, you know, that suits the purpose of your investigation. And that's going to range from a lengthy detailed report to an executive summary to no report at all 
and just, you know, an oral debrief in some cases. So it's important not to get into a one-size-fits-all mentality and consider what you need under the circumstances. This sort of leads us into the third part of our discussion, which is the prospect of litigation. We've touched on that in the discussion about complaint intake. We just talked about documentation. So I'd like to help our listeners better understand when an outside investigator might make sense and what steps employers need to take to be prepared when an investigation is needed. And the hard truth is that investigations can lead to litigation. You both have touched on discovery with the report and the importance of the investigator as a potential fact witness. So I want to know a little more about both of those important issues. Denise, can you touch on discovery as it relates to investigation specifically? You just mentioned it in the context of the report. Can you tell us a little bit about that with an eye to the litigation perspective? Sure. Should there be um, litigation that ensues, the very first thing that the employer will be notified about is is a documentation hold, so a litigation hold. So they will be required um, to secure all information relevant to this case, whether electronic or hard copy. And you need to be very careful about that and get that information out to those who might have necessary and relevant information. Because if you, for example, if you're Um, email policy is that it disappears off of your server in a year, but it's relevant to the litigation matter, it needs to be preserved. So that's really critical. And so your files, your electronic files, anything relevant to that litigation matter is, is, you know, on a litigation hold and needs to be preserved. Um, Beyond that, what you really want to be thinking about is, you know, who are my witnesses? How do I make sure that, that the confidentiality is still maintained, the discretion is still maintained, but getting people prepared for this potential litigation process. You're going to be working with your core group of um, folks, whoever conducted your investigation likely um, is going to be deposed as a fact witness, like we mentioned, and you want to be prepared for that as well. Well, we've talked about the fact witness and a couple of times. So, Stephanie, you mentioned that in considering who does an investigation, part of that consideration is who would make a good fact witness. So the who is one thing, but can you tell us in terms of helping people make that decision about who the investigator is, who makes a good fact witnesses, or what are the characteristics of a a good fact witness as you're thinking about the potential for litigation? I think really somebody who is um, credible and professional in a nutshell. And to that end, you want someone who has in-depth experience doing conducting work, workplace investigations, someone who's got a background in employment law for context is very helpful, somebody who is articulate and thinks on her feet, and overall, someone who looks put together and presents themselves uh, professionally. So as an HR professional myself, uh, when I was in-house, I found it very difficult to say to my colleagues or in-house counsel, I'm too close to the issues that are at hand that have been raised here, or I have to continue to work within the organization after the investigation, and the facts might make that a challenge for me, 
or even I have limited experience with investigating this particular issue, and I think we need a third party here. Do either of you have suggestions as to how an HR professional can raise those kinds of issues at the outset of an investigation to perhaps uh, raise the issue that I might not be the right person to deliver the investigation as the in-house HR professional? Denise, what are your thoughts? That is a great question, Lisa, and one that we hear all too often. Um, And I know that typically the HR professional has the best interests of the company in mind, but also has a hard time saying, you know, hold up, I I have a lot going on on my plate and I'm not sure I'm the best person. Um, You know, if, if you get into that difficult decision of whether or not to suggest a neutral or a third party to conduct an investigation, um, you know, you really just need to educate your senior leadership on the concerns. You know, is there any appearance of conflict or interest? Is HR involved or in any way implicated in this situation? Is there any issue or concern of favoritism or collusion or, or any interest in retaliation? There's a good chance then that the integrity of the investigation could be compromised. And you know, while it seems a little costly and unnecessary to bring in an outside person, a flawed investigation, you know, by having someone too close to the issues um, is really costly. And furthermore, it could even be something as simple as I'm a one-man HR, one-person HR shop, and I just don't have the bandwidth to do this properly and and promptly, which is also a key concern. You know, I, I can't I can't neglect payroll to be spending all my time on this investigation. So really, just educating on everything that is on that person's plate and the time that would need be needed. Uh, to be invested in doing a thorough, comprehensive, and prompt investigation, and then making an educated decision based on those considerations. Yeah, I, w- I was just going to add that um, thinking it through ahead of time and and presenting your position in a way that doesn't come off as defensive is going to work in your favor. You know, thinking it through as Denise outlined and and making sure you you have you know sound reasons for for your case, for your position, that it should be outsourced. It, you know, putting that time in ahead of time, I think, is going to, to make you seem l- less defensive and more thoughtful. And I'll just add to that, Stephanie, you raised the excellent point of an investigation plan, and that vets out a lot of those issues. You can actually get your plan set to determine what it's going to take to complete this investigation and present that uh, as a case, so you know, to decide who is the best person to do this for us. Education and training are often the key. So let's just touch on training as we as we start to close out our discussion. You know, we deliver training at EPS and so know just how important it can be to an organization. It's an investment that can save organizations thousands or even millions. So Stephanie and Denise, I'm I'm curious from your perspective, just how important is training for both HR professionals and managers when it comes to investigations and how to handle them. And I'm I'm curious what the key components for each of those constituencies are. Let's start with managers. So when we're talking about manager training, give us a little insight into the investigations piece of that training and just a few of the fundamentals that managers need to know when it comes to workplace investigation. Let's start with managers. Managers, in my opinion, are, are the face of your organization. They are considered you know, leadership. And once managers have any inclination that there is a, an employee concern, a legitimate employee concern out there, 
they really their first duty is to respond to that. So without educating them on that, there could be a chance that they might miss something. Um, what we want them to be able to do first and foremost is to know how to do the complaint intake, know how to assess and evaluate a concern versus um, you know, a policy concern versus a legal concern, and just be able to get enough data gathering to get it into the right person's hands. Um, we want to make sure that they know what to say and what not to say to a particular complainant or someone who may have witnessed some alleged wrongdoing. Uh, we want to make sure they're sincere, concerned with the victim, they ask open-ended questions, they actively take notes um, if they are taking down information, and in what they shouldn't do. You know, they shouldn't make judgments. They shouldn't make any promises. They shouldn't make dismissive statements. And this is really tricky if you've not been properly trained and you fully understand your organization's policies regarding complaints and investigations. So that, to me, is critical, is just this awareness component of the training. Uh, you know, no one's going to be – we don't expect every manager to be um, – a lawyer <laughs> and, and know every detail of these laws, but we do want them to be astute enough to know when to take something seriously and how to get enough information to get it moved in the right direction so that the company can be proactive in addressing it. And that is training. For HR professionals, I'm assuming, I'm not assuming, I know it's a lot more in depth. I mean, those are components, Denise, that you just discussed that are part of all of our management creating respectful workplace classes. For HR professionals, it's considerably more in depth and Steph, can you tell us a little bit more about that, or Denise? Sure. Um, so for the for the HR professionals who are actually going to be conducting an investigation, or or not, for all HR professionals, we're going to need them to have more in-depth HR uh, training. But for people for, for people who are going to be conducting investigations, that's elevated to an even higher level. The most effective training on any topic is training that's engaging and is customized and most importantly is interactive, and that couldn't be more true than in the case of investigation. Um, no one is going to learn how to effectively investigate a workplace com uh, complaint by listening to me lecture or, or taking an online class. So the training needs to involve rolling up sleeves and um, actually engaging in activities that simulate the conducting of investigations with, you know, participants um, actively participating in the session, which is going to take, it, which is going to be lengthy. It's, I, I, we, we conduct this type of training, and it's typically a day-long process. So it's, it's very different from the much more uh, limited training in this, in this regard that managers would get, which, as, as Denise outlined, is recognizing and, and knowing when to appropriately, resp uh, to appropriately respond to red flags and concerns that need to be investigated by HR. This is, you know, the actual process. Um, so it's a much more in-depth type of training process. That makes sense. Well, thank you both. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. You can find details about investigations and all EPS services at our website, epspros.com. That's E-P-S-P-R-O-S.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and listen to this and other podcasts on iTunes and SoundCloud. We'd love to hear your feedback and better understand the employment practices challenges you face as an HR or employment law professional, and we hope you'll join us on upcoming podcasts. Thanks again.